This is Kick-Ass News. I'm Ben Mathis. Hey folks, Ben Mathis here with a couple important announcements. You know that we have great advertisers that support the show and keep it free for you to listen. And one of the reasons why advertisers love Kick-Ass News is that they know the show has amazing listeners. Right now, we have a survey that I'd like you to take to help us learn more about our audience. Just go to podsurvey.com kick. The survey will only take five minutes. We're going to ask you some questions about yourself and what you like to buy, but it's completely anonymous, and your answers will help us find advertisers that are well-matched to you, your interests, and the show. And as a way of saying thank you, when you're finished, you can enter a monthly drawing to win a $100 Amazon gift card. Even if you've taken our podcast listener survey before, I'd like to ask you to take this one and help support the show. It'll be a big help to me, and don't forget that you have a chance to win that $100 Amazon gift card. Once again, that's podsurvey.com slash kick. That's K-I-C-K. Thanks for helping us find the best advertisers so that we can keep the show free. Also, the holidays are upon us, and if you're like me, you'll skip the madness of the stores and do most of your shopping on Amazon this year. And if you're going to be doing that anyway, then help support the show by going to the sponsor page on our website at kickassnews.com and copying and pasting the Amazon link there into your web browser before you start ordering. Then Amazon will toss us a little something for every purchase you make this holiday season. You have to shop for gifts anyways. They've got just about everything you can imagine on Amazon delivered right to your door. It won't cost you anything extra, and you can help support the show. So it's kind of like giving two gifts for the price of one this year. And that, my friends, is what you call a Christmas miracle. So again, go to the sponsor page at kickassnews.com and copy our Amazon link into your web browser before you start shopping. And if you feel extra generous this Christmas, then make a donation to keep us going over here at gofundme.com slash kickassnews. Thanks for listening and enjoy the podcast. Hi, I'm Ben Mathis and welcome to Kickass News. For over half a century, Middle East peace has been the elusive holy grail of U.S. foreign policy. Presidents from Carter to Clinton, Bush to Obama, have tried to broker a lasting peace between Palestinians and Israelis, and though some of their efforts have led to brief glimmers of optimism, a succession of negotiations and fragile agreements have failed to overcome the complicated history and deep-rooted distrust between these two peoples. One person who can attest to the difficulty of that task is former Senate Majority Leader George Mitchell. He knows how to bring peace to troubled regions. George Mitchell was the primary architect of the 1998 Good Friday Agreement for Peace in Northern Ireland, but when he served as the U.S. Special Envoy for Middle East Peace from 2009 to 2011, working to end the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, diplomacy did not prevail. Now, in a new book called A Path to Peace, A Brief History of Israeli-Palestinian Negotiations and a Way Forward in the Middle East, George Mitchell and his co-author, Middle East advisor Alon Sakar, 
offer an insider account of how the Israelis and the Palestinians have progressed and regressed in their negotiations through the years, and they outline the specific concessions each side must make to finally achieve a lasting peace. George J. Mitchell served as a Democratic senator from Maine from 1980 to 1995 and Senate Majority Leader from 1989 to 95. He was the primary architect of the 1998 Good Friday Agreement for Peace in Northern Ireland, chairman of the Walt Disney Company, U.S. Special Envoy for Middle East Peace, and author of the Mitchell Report on the Use of Performance-Enhancing Drugs in Baseball. His books include World on Fire, Saving an Endangered Earth, Not for America Alone, The Triumph of Democracy and the Fall of Communism, Making Peace, and The Negotiator, a memoir. He was nominated for a Nobel Prize in 1998 for his role in the Northern Ireland peace process. He was invested as an honorary Knight Grand Cross of the Order of the British Empire, and in 1999, George Mitchell received the Presidential Medal of Freedom. His co-author, Alone Sakar, has worked to advance Middle East peace under two U.S. administrations. He's served as an advisor to the U.S. Ambassador to Israel from 2011 to 2012 and to President Obama's Special Envoys for Middle East Peace from 2009 to 2011. He served in the State Department's Bureau of Near Eastern Affairs And before that, he worked at the U.S. Consulate in Jerusalem, which serves as the U.S. diplomatic mission to the Palestinians. Today, George Mitchell and Alon Sakar will talk about why the peace process has failed and what needs to happen if it's ever to succeed. Senator Mitchell will discuss the big differences between brokering peace in Northern Ireland and negotiating peace in the Middle East, how he took that post as the president's Middle East envoy, thinking he'd be working with a very different Israeli prime minister, and how the political constraints on the Israeli prime minister and the Palestinian president can often work against the peace process. Plus, we'll talk about the at times tense relationship between the U.S. and Israel under President Obama and Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, why he says it's been at least partly mischaracterized in the media, and how he says that bond has been tested even further during previous administrations. Coming up with George Mitchell and Alone Sakar in just a moment. George J. Mitchell served as a Democratic senator from Maine from 1980 to 1995 and Senate Majority Leader from 1989 to 1995. He was the primary architect of the 1998 Good Friday Agreement for Peace in Northern Ireland, and under President Obama, he served as U.S. Special Envoy for Middle East Peace. Alon Sakar served as an advisor to the U.S. Ambassador to Israel and to President Obama's Special Envoys for Middle East Peace, George Mitchell and David Hale. Together, Senator Mitchell and Mr. Sakar have written a new book called A Path to Peace, A Brief History of Israeli-Palestinian Negotiations and a Way Forward in the Middle East. Gentlemen, thanks for sitting down with me. Thanks for having us. Thank you. I'm going to start with what might seem like an absurd question, but why is the Israeli-Palestinian conflict America's problem? 
It is not exclusively America's problem, but the United States has an interest in its resolution. It is, of course, primarily of concern to Israelis and Palestinians themselves and others in that region who, whose lives are affected by the conflict. But the United States is the world's dominant power and will be for as far into the future as human beings can see. We have relations with almost all of the nearly 200 countries in the world. We trade with them. We benefit from the fact that the United States currency, the dollar, is the reserve currency around the world. Uh, and stability, prosperity, peace, everywhere in the world is in our interest, although not exclusively our concern. In, in the Middle East, there are two reasons why we've been involved for a long time. The first is the United States has a firm and unshakable commitment to Israel's right to exist behind secure and defensible borders, and we will honor that commitment. The second is that although the world is now entering a period of transition away from fossil fuels and carbon products, it has been for many years now and will for some years to come be dependent on continuing the supply of oil, natural gas, and other such products. Much of the oil reserve in the world is held in the Middle East, and so for nearly a century now, the United States has been deeply involved in making certain that there remains a steady and reliable flow to the world. In the last few years, the United States has remarkably become the largest producer of oil and natural gas, and so we are well on our way to self-sufficiency, but it remains uh, an international product priced worldwide, and effects on supplies elsewhere have an effect on us and on our allies with whom we trade and from which trade we derive enormous benefit. So our national interest is in seeing an end to the conflict, although the parties themselves have to want it also. We can't want it more than Israelis and Palestinians want it. But if they're ready, we can play a crucial role in bringing peace about. Perhaps this is cynical of me, but oftentimes it seems a lot like U.S. presidents pursue Middle East peace out of ego, and they wait until it's toward the end of their administration, the last two years or so, when they're trying to build a foreign policy record that they can build a wing for in their presidential library. Am I wrong? Uh, you're certainly wrong with respect to President Obama. Right. He appointed me as a Middle Very East envoy two days after yeah. he took office. And when he appointed me, he said, I'd like you to go to the Middle East tonight. I said, well, wait a minute, Mr. President. I, I've got to go home. I've got to pack a bag. I've got to say goodbye to my wife and kids. So I went a couple of days after that. Uh, so there may be something to what you say, but I think different presidents have approached it at different times, depending on the circumstances in the region. And keep in mind, when President Obama took office, the then war between Israel and Hamas in Gaza had just ended four days earlier. Yeah. So there was huge hostility, emotions were raw, uh, but the president jumped right in and uh, we were not able to get it done. Uh, he was the 12th president to try. <laughs> Mr. Trump will be the 13th. Uh, whoever uh, Trump appoints as Secretary of State will be the 21st Secretary of State. But we have to keep trying because peace is an important goal for everyone. 
in the earlier part of the book, you both get into a little bit of the history of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Alone, what are some of the greatest misconceptions about the backstory of Jewish and Palestinian claims to this territory and how this conflict evolved over the years? Well, I think both societies have such deeply held beliefs and narratives of their own that it makes it incredibly difficult for them to view the other uh, as having some legitimate claims of themselves. So I think there are all kinds of different parts of history that one side focuses on and the other would like to forget. Um, but I think the, 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 absolute, the most important uh, part of their history is that they both have legitimate and real claims to this land. They both have populations that have their national and economic and societal interests that uh, are rooted in this land and that they will both continue to live here. And that is why the pursuit of peace and of some kind of resolution to the conflict is so important going forward. Um, you say that the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is not exclusively religious, and I think that's a common misconception. So what is it about, aside from just that? Well, it's territory, as we right. just discussed. <laughs> uh, it is national identity. Uh, it is uh, cultural. It is a different way of life. Uh, that's not uncommon there. One could look at the United States and Mexico. Mm -hmm. and say, while we live side by side, we once fought a war, uh, but we now have peaceful relations, although our cultures are much different, our language is different, our ethnic background is to some degree different. Uh, so it's commonplace in human history for national entities to form around homogeneous groups in language, in race, in culture, and in religion. It is also unfortunately na uh, common for there to be national histories of conflict among many such groups. This is one of them, one of the oldest, one of the most passionately held, a very destructive one to both societies, and one which we believe can be brought to an end, and we hope and pray that it will. Senator Mitchell, when you were appointed Middle East envoy under President Obama, like you said, two days into his administration, Mahmoud Abbas and then Israeli Prime Minister Ehud Omer had already made some progress toward a peace deal. And you actually give a surprising amount of credit to the Bush administration and Condi Rice. Um, did you take the post thinking that you were going to have at least the beginnings of a framework for a deal to build upon rather than having to start negotiations out of whole cloth? Uh, it became clear almost immediately that those negotiations would not be carried forward for two reasons. One is the two sides both insisted as a precondition to any discussions that no agreement be final until everything was final as a way of encouraging compromise on particular issues but not being bound by it until they each saw the whole picture. So when those negotiations came to an end, when the conflict, that time a renewal of conflict between Israel and Hamas and Gaza came to an end, there had been no agreement. Secondly, any effort to begin where they left off was immediately rejected by Prime Minister Netanyahu who publicly and emphatically 
described Olmert's discussions as invalid, unimportant, and dangerous for Israel. So some have said we should have picked up the negotiations there, and surely we would have liked to do that. But the Prime Minister of Israel right. made it very clear he would not negotiate on that basis, that we had to start from scratch. I think in the book you said that probably one of his biggest mistakes uh, was that Prime Minister Omer made the negotiations public in the middle of an Israeli election. And so it was inevitable that Netanyahu and even those farther to the right to him were going to criticize it and push him farther to the right and away from those negotiations. Yes, it was unfortunate. It was, in fact, just a few days before the election, and just exactly what you described did occur. Uh, the candidates to succeed Prime Minister Olmert uh, came out in varying degrees uh, of opposition to it. Netanyahu was by far the strongest, clearest public opponent of it. And what we were talking about a moment ago speaks to, I guess, one of the biggest problems, which is that it always seems a little bit like that movie Groundhog Day. The Israelis and the Palestinians, time and time again, end up having to start all over again from square one. How do you break that cycle? It's extremely difficult. It's not unique to this conflict. Uh, I chaired three separate sets of discussions in Northern Ireland over a span of five years. And if I heard it once, I heard it a hundred times. Uh, this has been going on for 800 years. There have been many previous efforts. Everyone had to start from scratch. You'll never get this done. And in fact, for almost all of the five years, we didn't get it done. I've said often that we had 700 days of failure and one day of success. And so we hope and pray that both Israelis and Palestinians will come to recognize that it is their self-interest that lies in getting an agreement. We referred in the book to a speech made by President George W. Bush when he traveled to Jerusalem in 1998 to push his peace plan, a very detailed roadmap for peace, as he called it. And he spoke to an assembled group of Israeli and Palestinian leaders. And he said to the Israelis, you've got a state, a successful state, but you don't have security for your people. The people of Israel live in constant fear and anxiety. The only way you're going to get that security is if the Palestinians get a state. Bush then said to the Palestinians, you want a state, and we support that, but you're never going to get a state until the people of Israel have sustainable and reasonable security. So he said to the both of them, you should be vested in each other's success because that's the only way you can get what you want. Mm -hmm. And I think in the book, you talk about one of your first meetings with uh, Netanyahu and how he showed you a piece of paper. Uh, he said, uh, they, meaning the Palestinians, will get a negotiation on borders after we, the Israelis, get a full security agreement with the United States. Mm -hmm. That is to say, he wanted separate discussions with the United States to precede and be concluded before Israel would discuss yeah. territorial borders. And uh, we never reached the first point, so we never got to the second yeah. point. Um, the relationship between President Obama and Prime Minister Netanyahu got off to a pretty rocky start 
when you say Obama suggested a freeze in settlements would be a good start, and you use the word suggestion, how did that so quickly turn into this narrative of Obama gave Netanyahu an ultimatum? Obama, Obama never gave Netanyahu an ultimatum. Uh, but from the president on down, including me and including alone and including everyone in the administration, we did not do a good job of explaining that it was not an ultimatum. It was part of a broader package in which three different groups were asked to do something to contribute to an improvement in the atmosphere that would make negotiations possible and successful. Recall, as I've just said, the war in Gaza had just ended four days before Obama took office. Yeah. There'd been a lot of death and destruction. Hostility was high. Emotions were raw. So the president concluded, rightly, that there was no chance of getting to negotiations immediately. We devised a package. We asked Israel for a settlement freeze, which was identical in words and substance to what President Bush had asked for just right. a few years earlier. We asked the Arabs to take steps toward the normalization of relations with Israel. We didn't ask them to fully recognize and sign an agreement now. But we asked for small things, permit Israeli commercial overflights over their territory, engage in telephonic and mail service, open trade offices that had once existed, steps like that that would signal good faith toward trying to come back together. And we asked the Palestinians to aggressively reduce incitement and hostility to Israeli within their society, within their educational system, in their mosques and so forth. We couldn't get anybody to move. The Israelis wouldn't free settlements. The Arabs said they wouldn't act until Israel froze settlements. And the Palestinians said essentially the same thing. So we were not able to move forward as we had hoped. But we did not make any request in any of the three cases as a precondition to negotiation. We hoped it would facilitate negotiation. Why was Mahmoud Abbas so resistant to engaging in direct talks with Netanyahu? Uh, I said in the book, and I know alone shares this view, uh, I spent a great deal of time with both Netanyahu and Abbas, separately and in the few occasions that they met directly. I believe, and this is a personal opinion based upon those contacts, that Netanyahu does not think that Abbas has the personal and political strength to enter into an agreement and, as critically important, to see it through to implementation. Mm -hmm. And so he's unwilling to enter into a process that he thinks is going to fail because of the other guy. Mm -hmm. Remember, both societies are divided. Anybody who takes a step that might be seen as a concession to the other side will, will get a lot of criticism. Yeah. From his side, Abbas believes that Netanyahu is not serious, that he really doesn't want a two-state solution, and he cites the fact that Netanyahu campaigned twice opposed to a two-state solution. Right. He's since changed his mind to favor one twice, but Abbas thinks, he's, Abbas thinks that Netanyahu is only doing as much as he can to placate the Americans, that he'll never permit a two-state solution. So neither of them is willing to take risks. You, you, you've got to have the confidence that the process might work to take the enormous risk because, as I said, both societies are divided. 
About half of each society supports a two-state mm -hmm. solution, half doesn't. But in Israel right now, members of Netanyahu's government, cabinet ministers, openly and strongly say there will never be a Palestinian state in the West Bank. Mm -hmm. And of course, among Palestinians, Hamas is opposed to Israel's existence. They won't recognize them as the Palestinian Authority has. Yeah, and I think this speaks to the difficulty of both of their positions. It's not as if they're the president of the United States who appoints a secretary of state who may be in lockstep with them. You talk about how Prime Minister Omer had a foreign minister who was a political rival and couldn't necessarily be depended upon. Um, you're constantly threatened with losing your coalition if you offend the wrong people. And then, of course, you have Abbas who has to compete with Hamas. How do you achieve anything meaningful when the executives in their respective governments are in such precarious positions politically? Well, many Americans uh, criticize our two-party system, and there's surely much to criticize. But boy, they should try the multi-party system <laughs> when you have to have coalitions coalition. of several parties <laughs> to form a government. Keep in mind that when Netanyahu was elected at the time we started there in 2009, he only won 27 seats out of 120 in their parliament. Mm -hmm. In fact, he finished second. Right. His, uh, uh, Livni, the Kadima party, got 28. Uh, but in order to form a government, you need 61. And uh, she couldn't <laughs> form a government. He formed a government, but there's a lot of small parties. And as a result, it gives these small parties enormous leverage yeah. in the negotiating yeah. process, which they use very aggressively. Yeah, and we think we have complaints with the Electoral College. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to take a quick break, and then I'll be back to talk more with George Mitchell and Alone Sakar when we come back in just a minute. I know my listeners are like me in that you value staying informed and up on the latest news. Well, Reuters TV is the revolutionary video news app for busy people who want to know what on earth is going on. And believe me, now more than ever, I find myself asking what on earth is going on. So I want you to do yourself a favor and go to Reuters.tv slash kickass. You know, Reuters is the world's largest news organization with 2,500 reporters around the globe. And Reuters TV is video news as it should be. No hot air, no talking heads, and no theatrics. That's just how I like my news. I'll tell you, more and more, I have a hard time watching cable news because whether it's Fox News or MSNBC or even CNN, there's always an agenda. But you and I, we know what they're doing. They're trying to influence our opinion. I don't like that. I don't need to be told what to think. Just give me straight-up, unbiased reporting on the facts, and then I can make up my own mind. With Reuters, that's exactly what I get. Go to Reuters.tv slash kickass and check out some of the cool features. You can customize the length of your personalized news broadcasts anywhere from 5 to 30 minutes, and they update throughout the day. You can schedule downloads of broadcasts to watch offline whenever you want. You get live feeds of major news events such as presidential debates and press conferences. Available on your favorite device, iOS, Android, Roku, and Apple TV. It's personalized, always up to date, and ready when you are. It's basically the opposite of cable news. See for yourself. 
go to Reuters.tv slash kickass. That's Reuters, R-E-U-T-E-R-S dot TV slash kickass. And if you're enjoying my conversation today, you should order A Path to Peace, A Brief History of Israeli-Palestinian Negotiations and A Way Forward in the Middle East by my guests today, George J. Mitchell and Alon Sakar. And right now you can download the audio version of their book for free with a special promotion just for our listeners at audibletrial.com slash kickass or click on the sponsor link on our webpage to download A Path to Peace or any of 180,000 titles. And now, back to the podcast. Eventually, President Abbas surprised even you, I think, when he agreed to trilateral negotiations during the UN General Assembly. And then he surprised everyone a second time around when he backed off of his support for the UN Security Council to adopt the findings of the Goldstone Report, which accused Israel of numerous human rights violations. What do you suppose was behind Abbas's sudden about-face on those two things? It's a long, complicated story. Uh, I'll try to summarize <laughs> it here. Uh, originally, uh, the Palestinian Authority took the position of supporting uh, the UN Human Rights Council referral to the UN General Assembly. Uh, Israel was adamantly opposed to that. Uh, However, Abbas then, just before the Human Rights Council voted, reversed his position and said that uh, there wasn't enough time and he wasn't sure he had the votes, but that was widely uh, uh, perceived as uh, an inaccurate description, and he got a lot of flack. Uh, He then re-reversed his position. Uh, In the course of all of that, Uh, There were leaked to the newspapers uh, a couple of articles uh, which were highly critical personally of Abbas, alleging that uh, he had had engaged in corrupt acts and he had uh, uh, conspired with the Israelis uh, on the invasion of Gaza. Abbas believed that those were leaks from Netanyahu's government and it tended to confirm the hostility uh, which Abbas already had toward Netanyahu, and it, it dramatically affected the course of events thereafter. It seems like much of the problem throughout this was that there were just too many leaks. There was too much interference from the outside. And after that, you pushed for back-channel negotiations. Uh, I did not push for back-channel negotiations. Okay. That was a decision made by our government, uh, which I accepted uh, but uh, which I never had any confidence in, and really? it proved to be a, a failure, indeed a fiasco. Uh, and the same thing occurred. Same back, same channel, same people, same leak, same failure, uh, when Secretary Kerry went over afterward uh, to engage in a new initiative. Mm-hmm. Um, how much did the Iran nuclear deal hurt the relationship with Netanyahu and the potential to restart talks? Well, the relationship between Obama and Netanyahu uh, was not great before the Iran talks, and it surely was not enhanced when uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu, at the invitation of the Republican leadership, came and spoke to a joint session of Congress, urging them to oppose uh, President Obama's agreement. Uh, So I think clearly, uh, in retrospect, that was a serious error in judgment by the House Republican leadership to invite him 
Uh, it had never happened in that manner before, and for Netanyahu to have accepted. But I don't think it by itself was the basis, particularly since the agreement uh, was approved over the objection of uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu. Right. Uh, I believe the agreement was appropriate uh, and an important step in uh, reducing Iran's possibility of getting a nuclear weapon. Uh, and I don't believe that it would have been achieved through the means that the critics of President Obama have alleged that if we just increased the sanctions, uh, we would have gotten what we wanted. Uh, because the fact is that the sanctions were effective because they were universal. It wasn't just the U.S. and in Iran. It was the U.S., China, Russia, Britain, France, and Germany. And those five countries made absolutely clear they would not only not increase the sanctions, they wouldn't continue the sanctions mm -hmm. if the agreement were rejected. So uh, I think it was the right thing to do. Iran will continue its efforts to intervene in the region to try to influence it to their favor. That's been going on for hundreds of years, and it will go on in the future. But they'll be less effective in the absence of a nuclear weapon than they would otherwise have been. Uh, from your perspective on the inside, are relations between Obama and Netanyahu as bad as they've been portrayed in the media? I don't think so. And we open our book with a description of disagreements <laughs> between previous presidents yeah, and prime ministers. Yeah, that was interesting. You yeah. kind of trick people in that opening introduction there. <laughs> they, they, they thought they were reading about Netanyahu and Obama, and they were reading about Begin and Reagan. Yeah. In, in 1956, when Israel joined Britain and France and invading Egypt and seizing the Suez Canal, uh, Eisenhower wouldn't even talk to the Israeli prime minister until Israel withdrew, threatened to go to the United Nations and push and propose a resolution critical of Israel. Relations were much, much worse than they ever were between Obama and Netanyahu. When Reagan proposed his peace plan in 1982, then-Israeli Prime Minister Menachem Begin denounced Reagan in the strongest, most fierce personal terms, accused him of undermining Israel, and the Reagan plan was dead on arrival. Clinton didn't get along with Netanyahu. So there's nothing new about American presidents and Israeli prime ministers disagreeing. Uh, the relationship is between the people and the countries, and it's very strong and survives those disagreements. The fact is that Obama has been a strong supporter of Israel. Uh, he is the first American president in decades under whom no United Nations Security Council resolution critical of Israel has been passed. Not one. In Reagan's term, there were more than a dozen. In George W., George H. W. Bush's, in Bill Clinton's term, several resolutions were passed critical of Israel. Obama is the only American president who's pitched a shutout at the Security Council at the UN in support of Israel. Funding has been the highest level it's ever been. Security cooperation and intelligence cooperation, according to Israeli leaders themselves, has been the best it's ever been. And President Obama personally approved an increase in funds to Israel for early deployment of their, what they call, Iron Dome anti-missile system. And the real threat to Israel today doesn't come from an invasion across a border. They're so strong, no, none of their rivals is going to do that. The real threat comes from missiles. And when they needed the help, President Obama was there. Are there ways that your perspective has changed between the time that you were Middle East envoy and now writing this book and laying out a new path forward? In one respect, 
It has not changed. And that's really the purpose of the book. And I would like alone to comment on this, but the principle of American policy that the only credible resolution of this conflict is through a two-state solution. Mm-hmm. Yeah, let's let's talk about the path forward. What are some of the key elements, Alon? Well, we spend a considerable amount of time in this book going through some of the alternatives to a two-state solution. There are plenty of people within the current coalition government in Israel that do not accept the two-state solution and indeed want to basically make the current situation in the West Bank, which is Palestinian self-rule in some parts of the West Bank, they want to make that permanent and just continue on that trajectory forever. Um, And it is our view that that is not something that the Palestinians are going to accept indefinitely. The Palestinian Authority today has excellent security cooperation with the Israelis, um, and they provide for self-rule and self-government for the Palestinian people. That has relieved the Israelis of an enormous expense of needing to govern and take care of the West Bank and provide for full security there. The trade-off that the Palestinians had accepted, and this was clarified in President Bush's roadmap in 2006, was show you can be a responsible government, cooperate on security, show that you can be a, a, a partner in the region that will help provide stability, and that will lead to a state. Today, that approach has lost enormous uh, amount of support in the West Bank and in Gaza. Credibility of that approach is massively diminished. Many Palestinians on the Palestinian street see Abbas as somebody who's merely prolonging the occupation and helping make mm-hmm. the occupation easier for Israel, not as somebody who will provide the independence that the Palestinians are seeking. If that should end, if for some reason the Palestinians uh, no longer cooperate on, on security and on governance, the Israelis are going to have a real mess on their hand in the West Bank. It's a point that Senator Mitchell made very frequently uh, to the Israelis. They fear that a Palestinian state will become a failed state in the Middle East and right you know, miles away from their biggest cities and population center. We're arguing that That is a certainty in the absence of a peace agreement and in the absence of a two-state solution and one in which the Palestinians can continue to uh, provide for the kind of security that they're providing to cooperate with the Israelis and to build their state. So it is our view that any path forward will lead to partition eventually, that the, the Israelis and the Palestinians will at some point in the future realize that there is no other way but to partition the land again, which was the solution that the UN came up with initially in in the 1940s, albeit with different borders today. Can there be a peace as long as there's a Hamas? Yes, there can, uh, I believe. Hamas has no incentive now to participate in any process. Mm-hmm. They don't. Comp- they refuse to comply with the conditions that the United States and the European Union and others have established for them to enter. But there's nothing for them to enter now. In Northern Ireland, Sinn Féin, the political party affiliated with the IRA, did not enter the negotiations until 16 months after they started. (laughs) Because there was a set of principles of nonviolence, which I authored, which became known as the Mitchell Principles, that were the basis of coming in. They had to commit to nonviolence. If their serious negotiation begins in the Middle East, 
between the Palestinian Authority and the Israelis. And it has a prospect for moving forward, a meaningful chance. Hamas will then be in a very difficult position to stay out of it. They're already, as you know, they're now engaged in their fifth round of discussions, Palestinian Authority and Hamas, about unification. They've reached four agreements before they've all collapsed. Uh, they're trying now to make one that finally lasts. But in the end, I think most Palestinians want a single Palestinian state, albeit in two separate areas. Um, let me ask you both. Do you think that Mahmoud Abbas and Benjamin Netanyahu strike you as honest brokers who are serious about a peace deal? Now that you're no longer in government. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They are elected by their people. Mm -hmm. uh, if you go around the world now and ask them who they think should be leading the United States, they might have a different opinion yeah. than the people of the United States have. But Americans would bridle at the notion that anybody says, well, we're not going to deal with the United States because we don't think they elected the right person mm -hmm. to lead them. We believe in democracy. Democracy means free elections. And both Netanyahu and Abbas were elected in free and open elections. Abbas hasn't been reelected in part because Hamas won't put in, permit an election to occur. Hamas has the extraordinary political approach of saying that Abbas is illegitimate because he wasn't reelected when they prevent an election that would allow him <laughs> to be reelected. So uh, it may not be our first choice or our second choice or whatever, but that's who they chose and that's who we have a responsibility to deal with. And when the people of Israel decide they want someone else, they are free to do so. And the same with the Palestinians, just like we Americans mm -hmm. can choose who we want to be president. Well, do you think that both men are sincere in their desire for peace? Yes, I believe they're both sincere in their desire for peace, but the problem is they have different conditions for how to achieve that peace. Mm -hmm. Hello? And I, I agree fully. They yeah. also have different meanings about what the terms of the peace deal will necessarily right. be. They both now speak of the two-state solution, and that's a goal they both share, but they mean very different things when they speak of the two-state solution. Yeah. So... The answer is yes, but what the challenge is, is to get them on the same page and then into and through negotiation. Yeah. Uh, Senator Mitchell, you mentioned your signature accomplishment, the 1998 Good Friday Agreement. Do you ever get people who say, well, there are some superficial similarities, the IRA, Hamas, you managed to bring about peace in Northern Ireland. What's the difference <laughs> between okay. resolving that and resolving the Israeli-Palestinian conflict? I'll begin with a story. About two years ago, I spoke to a large group of Irish Americans in New York, and I said to them, I'm about to say something I never thought I'd believe, let alone say. Uh, I spent five years working on peace in Northern Ireland. I chaired three separate sets of negotiations, and I thought it was the most difficult thing I'd ever done. And then I went to the Middle East, and I spent six months with the Israelis and the Arabs and Palestinians, <laughs> and I thought the Irish were really easy. <laughs> a bunch of patsies to deal with. Uh, there are some similarities, religious differences, territorial differences, national identity, but the differences are far greater. The Middle East is more complicated, more affected by external events. Uh, it's a very important that Americans do not view the Israeli-Palestinian conflict in isolation. It exists and is affected by the tumultuous events in the region that 
constant conflict and upheaval going on. And it in turn affects many of those conflicts. You have to see it as part of a much larger picture. That was not the case in Northern Ireland. The other big difference is that after a half century of cool and indeed cold relationship between the governments of the United Kingdom and Ireland, they decided that the only way they're ever going to get peace in Northern Ireland is they had to work together. So the British and Irish governments worked together closely, courageously, and steadily over a long period of time to create the conditions to bring about peace in Northern Ireland. That doesn't exist in the Middle East. So external factors, differences. I'll conclude with one other humorous story. I spoke in Israel at a large function set up by the President of Israel. And in the course of a question and answer period, I mentioned that the Irish agreement was reached 800 years after the British domination of Ireland began. After the speech, I went down and as often happens, a crowd gathers around to talk, pictures, shake hands, ask questions. An elderly gentleman said to me in a loud voice, Senator Mitchell, did you say 800 years? Yes, I said 800 years. He repeated the number very loudly. 800 years in Ireland. And then he, with a dismissive wave of his hand, said, no wonder you settled at such a recent argument. <laughs> and that's part of the difference between the Middle East and yeah. Northern Ireland. <laughs> well, you lay out some good ideas here for Middle East peace. I, I wonder, we have a new president-elect who has said some things that have angered the Muslim world. Uh, do you have any specific advice that you would give him? President-elect Trump has said many things, as you say, uh, many hostile to Muslims. But he's also said that uh, he wants to try to get an agreement between Israelis and Palestinians. He said he thought it would be important. In his words, many people have told him it's impossible, but he wants to try. And we can only hope and pray that he does try and that he does succeed. Well, he does say he's a master negotiator, doesn't he? Well, I, <laughs> what I, do you I, think? I, I, I hope he does succeed. It will <laughs> be difficult, but uh, we yeah. we believe strongly that all conflicts come to an end. Yeah. And if it comes about this way, God bless him. Yeah. Well, perhaps not under uh, a President Trump, but maybe four years down the road, if you were ever to be approached again, would you want to take another crack at it? Uh, that, bell, that bell ringing is tolling not just the time <laughs> to leave this interview, <laughs> but to end my public career. <laughs> okay. Thank you. Fair enough. Well, again, the book is called A Path to Peace, A Brief History of Israeli-Palestinian Negotiations and a Way Forward in the Middle East. Senator George Mitchell and Alon Sakar, thank you for joining me. Thank you. Thanks again to George Mitchell and Alone Sakar for joining me on the podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, then you can order their new book, A Path to Peace, A Brief History of Israeli-Palestinian Negotiations and a Way Forward in the Middle East on Amazon. Or you can download the audio version of their book for free through that special trial offer just for our listeners at audibletrial.com slash kickassnews. George Mitchell is not on Twitter, but you can follow Alone Sakar on Twitter at at Alone Sakar. That's A-L-O-N-S-A-C-H-A-R. And visit his website at alonesakar.com. Again, check out our new advertiser and show them your support for the podcast by visiting reuters.tv slash kickass. That's Reuters, R-E-U, 
P-E-R-S dot TV slash kick ass. And don't forget to take our listener survey so we can keep this show free and find other advertisers who are best matched to you, our listeners. Just take five minutes to go to podsurvey.com slash kick and take the survey. And when you're done, be sure to register for that $100 Amazon gift card giveaway. And once again, before you start your Amazon shopping this Christmas, visit the sponsor page on our website at kickassnews.com and copy our Amazon link into your web browser first. Then Amazon will kick us a little coin for every order you make this season. Be sure to subscribe to Kick-Ass News on iTunes and leave us a review while you're there. You can visit Kick-Ass News on Facebook or follow us on Twitter at at KAPolitics. And please be sure to recommend Kick-Ass News to your friends on your social media. And if you really want to help out, then donate to our GoFundMe campaign at GoFundMe.com slash KickAssNews. As always, I welcome your comments, questions, and suggestions at comments at KickAssNews.com. For now, though, I'm Ben Mathis, and thanks for listening to Kick-Ass News. Kick-Ass News is a trademark of Mathis Entertainment, Inc.